In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Lord, we're... Here tonight, thankful and thankful and in awe of you, Lord, for the word you have given us and, and the works that you have done for us. Lord, these, these blessings that we are going to read about tonight, Lord, how, how they give us secure security and, and hope and confidence in you. And Lord, we pray that tonight the words that, uh, the words that are spoken, Lord, would, um, would be effectual and encouraging, and Lord, that the um, Lord that the Spirit would be here with us tonight to to apply it to our lives. And Lord, we pray that all this would be done in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so, last time I was up here, uh, which was about two months ago, uh, I began going through the Book of Ephesians, uh, dealing with uh, chapter one, verses one through six. And to summarize that briefly, Paul very quickly introduces himself as the author. Uh, in the opening verses, writing to the church in Ephesus. He does this in a pattern um, that initially demonstrates the unity he has with the church, uh, the church there in Ephesus. And this is one of the major themes throughout the book, is the unity we have in Christ. Um, he opens up by saying he's an apostle of Christ, writing to the Ephesians who are faithful in Christ. He then immediately gets straight into it in verse 3, kind of doing a very brief greeting and... Um, in a section that's appropriately called the spiritual blessings. Now here scripture tells us that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not just some of them, or not even most of them, but all of them. In verse 3, uh, he's, uh, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And to emphasize how sure and secure we should be in those blessings, Paul compares our receiving those blessings to the election that we have in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The absolute decision made in eternity past before the foundation of the world in our election can give us confidence in our salvation. And that confidence then can then translate to the confidence we have in the receiving of these blessings that we have in the Spirit. Paul then continues into verse 5 to underscore his point, but with a different emphasis. Saying that in love, the Father predestined us for adoption through Jesus, according to the Father's will. Compared to his words that he used previously, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul uses the word in love and adoption to illustrate the personal relationship we have with the Father in Christ. But instead of revealing the Father's purpose and how it applies to us in being holy and blameless before him, he reveals it in how it, how it pertains to the purpose of God, and that is to the praise of his glory. Paul then sums up his point by saying, 
with which he, the Father, has blessed us in the Beloved, that being, that being Christ. So that brings us to where we are tonight in, uh, in verse 7. Paul continues in revealing to us more of those blessings that we've received, saying, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now here Paul takes two separate things, the redemption that we have and the forgiveness. These two separate blessings, if you will, but they both go hand in hand saying that we've received these blessings because of the riches of the Father's grace. These two different blessings doesn't mean that they are um, distinct and separate from each other, though they are different. They're different because a part of the application of redemption is the forgiveness that we receive. And there's many other ways that redemption is applied to us through justification and sanctification uh, and propitiation. I mean, there's, there's a plethora of other ways in which we have received graces through redemption. Um, but here Paul brings up just forgiveness. So these two blessings demonstrate wondrously the work of Jesus on the cross for us. Forgiveness of sin is something we can easily understand, too, because uh, it's something that we, sh- we should be doing on the daily, or, or at least should be aiming, to, uh, aiming for. Um, and the reason is, is because we're called to do it. We're called to forgive others just as the Father has forgiven us. And I think this makes the blessing of forgiveness something unique, Uh, Because we're not called to redeem others or justify others or propitiate for others. Um, So this makes this blessing unique in that we're called to exercise this blessing towards others just as how the Father exercises it towards us. Um, In Matthew 18, Jesus finishes talking about how to handle a brother or sister who sins against you, commonly in that passage known as uh, the church discipline, and how to handle church discipline. And uh, Peter asked Jesus, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus here is saying as long as there is confession and repentance, that there should also be forgiveness on our part. And this is in direct mirror or in direct correlation to how the Father forgives us as well. Uh, But I think it goes even much further than that because there's a lot of sins that we're not aware of. A lot of sins that we go through our lives that haven't yet been revealed to us as as sins, at least at that moment. And that's part of that process of sanctification. Yet the Father still forgives us. And so I think this puts an even larger charge on that command of of, uh, loving your enemy or forgiving others. And that we're to forgive others even if they don't repent to us or if they confess their sin to us. We are still called to forgive them. Um. Now, this isn't something that's, con- that's easily relatable to, uh, for me personally, because I don't feel like there's people out there who continuously sin against me and I have to, and I have to forgive them for, or maybe that's just me being naive. Um, but despite how tough it is for those of us, it is, uh, for those of us to forgive others, um, that's how the Father does it towards us, and so we are to, to emulate that. Now, forgiveness goes hand in hand with redemption because it's a natural application proceeding from redemption. A simple way in which redemption um, as being wholly different than forgiveness is that we're not called to redeem others, as I previously stated, um, just as God redeems us. In reality, we, we wouldn't be able to because we're not perfect. Uh, we don't have the capacity to redeem others. To redeem is, is to save. And you see, before we were in Christ, we were in Adam, that federal headship. And before we were alive in Christ, we were dead in sin. Before we were a slave to Christ, we were a slave in sin. This is a point that Paul talks, talks about elsewhere in Scripture, but he elaborates more on this in chapter 2, 
and dealing with uh, being, being dead in our sins. But the point is, is we need saving. And that is the redemption that Paul here talks about. And uh, the reason this is qualified is because what qualified with forgiveness is what's the point of forgiveness if we still need saving? What's the point of forgiveness if we still need saving? And that Christ is our salvation. His perfect life and innocent death is the means of our sin for our debt to the Father to be paid, for us to be justified and forgiven, being uh, justified and forgiven. Not only that we're put in a right standing with God, but also redeemed from a life of sin. This redemption and forgiveness, though, is also all according to the riches of God's grace. And what an extreme grace that has to be to save us from it. Not only did Jesus come to save his sheep, those that were predestined, but he also came to save them, or to save us, while we were still at enmity with him. Our redemption doesn't stop at his death, in that while we, before we were saved, we were enemies with him, but it also continues on in Jesus' life. For uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, not while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And these blessings of redemption and forgiveness how I said they kind of go hand in hand. This can be seen throughout Scripture, but here it can be specifically seen in the structure of the sentence, which is retained from the original Greek. The phrase forgiveness of our trespasses in the English language is, an act- is in a positive. It's a noun phrase, which describes the previous noun being redemption. This demonstrates that, for- that the forgiveness of our trespasses or the forgiveness of our sins explains the nature of our redemption. Our redemption is the forgiveness of sin, but that doesn't mean that's all there is to redemption. That's just the one instance of application that Paul's pointing out right here. So Paul keeps going with with how great this grace is that we've received, continuing in verse 8, which he lavished lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. These graces or these blessings that we've received aren't just a disposition that the Father has toward us. It's not a give-as-needed sort of situation where We sin a little bit, and the Father goes, oh, okay, well, I'll forgive you again. Um, No, he's he's given us grace in abundance. He's lavished it on us, much more than enough, much more than I'm sure any of us could even fathom. And to be honest, this word lavish is uh, something that I I don't use in my daily speech. I don't think I've actually ever used it outside of reading it in Scripture because there's nothing that I can think of in life in which I have abundance of or that I'm lavished with with the exception of maybe what I get at Costco occasionally. But even then, that has, a, that has an end because um, at some point you have to go back and get more. And so the closest thing in thinking, the closest thing I could think of that, is, uh, that we could be lavished with is the air we breathe. Because we can go day after day breathing air for week after months, years, or even our entire lives not worrying about where we get our air from. But even then, that has limitations, as we saw a couple months ago with the fire, where the abundance of air we had was actually toxic and didn't, didn't do well for us. Um, and so this is, this is the grace and the blessings that God has, has given us, the grace that extends from, from the foundation of the world to a time where, where we are before him holy and blameless. 
His grace proceeds from a kingdom that is so valuable that Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is the grace or the blessings that have been lavished upon us. Paul continues, this was done in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. To me, that's an amazing concept to behold, that, that he would make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. The, the, the God of the universe, the author of life and creator of everything, has, has a will and a purpose. And it's not one that's flippant or erratic. It's not without meaning. It's according to a purpose that before the foundation of time, he set forth that is going to be exercised as a plan according to what he has set forth in Christ. And this is all for a moment in time or the fullness of time. And the reason for this is to unite all things in Christ. That, that's the, the whole plan and purpose is to unite all things back in Christ things in heaven and things on earth. The simple idea of us being able to know the mystery and will of God is such a simple thing, but it gives me as an individual a lot of confidence and motivation. Um, And I'd like to qualify that with that's typically, or that is actually the work of the Spirit in me. It's a means of grace. So this, this knowledge that we have of God's will is a means of grace to motivate us and give us confidence in him. And uh, to make sense of how important it is for us, um, I kind of came up with a little of an illustration, um, which, as all illustrations, fall short at some point. But it's something that kind of uh, I realized um, through work, with, uh, through working under bosses. And that's uh, while we're at work, we're, we're under a boss or under someone, and uh, we, they give us tasks to do. And... It's to fulfill goals that that boss has um, set forth. And uh, now imagine you start, a new, you start a new job and you're under a new boss, just kind of like how you're a new Christian. You're, you're, you're in this new relationship with the Father, and, um, and he, he gives you a task. And so my boss says, oh, take these boxes on this pallet and go take them over, way, way over there on that pallet. And so I do it with enthusiasm and vigor because it's a new job. It's exciting. It's kind of a new place in life, and you kind of really don't know what opportunities you're going to have. And um, when I'm done with it, I move all those boxes, and I do it as fast as I can. I even take boxes and stack them on top of each other and, and move them over there even faster to, to impress my boss. And when I'm done, I go back to the boss and say, okay, what now? And he tells me to move more boxes to another pallet that's way over there. And I do this over and over and over. And eventually, um, it gets to a point where I even notice that I'm moving boxes back to where I originally had them. It almost seems pointless and futile. Um, it's not long before I start questioning the motives of my boss and actually becoming disheartened and uh, unmotivated and burdened with the work that he's giving me because the perspective I have of what I'm doing is contained in the boxes I'm moving or it's contained in the actions that I'm doing. Um, and I don't have any bigger picture. Um, and I see this in similar in that if we were just given a list of things to do by God, that's all they would be, just things to do. Um, but God's graced us with his knowledge, or with, with his will and his plan. Um, now, if, if my boss were to give me his, his plan or his purpose, kind of show, okay, we're doing this for this reason, that way in the future we could do this, or however you would put it, it 
can give me a sense of motivation or a sense of purpose that's outside of the task I'm doing, something bigger to look forward to. And, uh, and I, I think that's exactly what, when God reveals his will and purpose to us, that's exactly what that's doing. It gives us perspective for what he's called us to do. If we, if we neglect reading our Bibles and prayer, um, we tend to stray from proper perspective and become burdened with do this or do that or don't do this and don't do that. Um, we become burdened with works that feel, that feel meaningless. Abstaining from sin becomes something that seems futile. Um, but through reading scripture, we can, we can know the mind of God and know the mystery of his will as he's laid out for us. And through prayer, we can reorient our perspective or our outlook from not looking laterally towards those things that we're doing, but looking upwards towards, um, towards a focus of how great and loving God is. And our focus then isn't burdened by the works of fighting sin. And, uh, and that allows us to uh, rest in Christ and uh, rely on the Spirit and give glory to the Father. I'd like to qualify that, though, with... Um, it doesn't mean... I'm not saying that reading your Bibles and prayer will make you feel better, as in give you that confidence and motivation. Rather, it's a, it's a means of grace. So if we read our Bibles, the Spirit's able to work within us in what, we've, in what we've read to influence us, motivate us, and give us confidence. And there's plenty of other means of graces, such as fellowship with one another, or sitting under teaching, or a men's study, or women's study. Um, my point is simply that the simple phrase, make known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, is a profound blessing. A blessing that means that the means of grace can work through us in the spirit to motivate us to live lives that give glory to God. And the point Paul brings all this around back to is for the fullness of time when Christ <clears throat> to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the future order that Paul begins with talking about in verse 4 with those blessings that we've received, celebrating those blessings we've received in eternity past. And then in verse 7, talking about the blessings we've received now in the present. And then culminating in verse 9, where he celebrates the mystery of his will being the uniting of all things in Christ. Paul continues in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In, in studying this section, or in reading this section, um, I found it difficult to isolate who Paul was talking about with all his pronouns. He begins with, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, and we were the first to hope in Christ. And then he switches to a, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. So it appears as if Paul's making a distinction between himself or we being separate from who he's addressing, and that is the church in Ephesus. And after kind of reading some commentaries or some, uh, what other people thought about this, I found a lot of conflicting ideas. So I'm going to do my best to kind of illustrate what I think it means. And I believe this passage opens up one of the specifics, so this is the specific applications of the themes in this book, and that is that being unity. And the specific of that is the unity of Jew and Gentile. Paul begins by saying that the Jews, in him 
we have obtained an inheritance. The Jews have obtained an inheritance, being a literal inheritance through the bloodline of Adam, David, and then culminating into Jesus. This is the inheritance. And this being so that the Jews were the first to hope in Christ. And this isn't something foreign because it fits along with some of, other, uh, some of the other teachings in Scripture where Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, verse 6, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Jesus, has another, uh, Jesus gives another example of this in Matthew 15, 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, that, that region, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. Jesus said he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yet he still answers her prayer. We're kind of demonstrating to the Jew first and also the Greek. So to summarize this first section, Paul says that we, the Jews, obtained an inheritance that was predestined so that they were the first to hope in Christ, to the praise of his glory. And then Paul continues by personally addressing the church, uh, the church of Ephesus. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of salvation and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul isn't arguing here that the gospel is for them. He's declaring it as an actual truth. This isn't an argument that Paul's making. So then Paul continues down into verse 14. And this is where Paul makes a huge monumental shift in talking about him and the Jews and them and the church in Ephesus. He goes from where the Jew is, where it's first to the Jew and the Gentile. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? to the praise of his glory. This is where Paul goes from talking about the Jew first and then also to the Greek. This is where Paul explicitly illustrates the unity of the Jew and the Gentile and the whole purpose to all being the praise and glory of God. Now, the blessings that are in this section titled the spiritual blessings of Christ, um, they're wonderful things and they give us hope and confidence and peace, but it's also important to know that they're always given in a context and Paul doesn't let up in the context that he gives these blessings. He qualifies almost every blessing he writes to the church in this passage here, with it being in Christ. And it's for good reason, because we we like blessings, and we tend to like ourselves also. And if we're honest, we like ourselves too much. And what that tends to lead to is justifying our sin with those blessings. Um, Because It can be argued, if you use some faulty logic, it could be argued that the more you sin, the more you demonstrate the grace of God. Um, But Paul here says that, Paul here says that he's lavished us in grace, that we have grace abounding, and that we're blessed in Christ, that we're chosen in Christ, that we're adopted as sons through Christ, all to the praise of the Father's grace because he blessed us in Christ again. 
because we have redemption through Christ, because he made known to us the mystery of his will set forth in Christ to unite all things in Christ, because we have obtained an inheritance in Christ, all to the praise of Christ's glory. These blessings can't promote sin because they're in the context of being in Christ, and Christ didn't sin. So therefore, we, despite our sin, we have redemption through his grace because we're in Christ. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're in Christ, you have these blessings, and not just one of them or some of them, but you have them all. And no matter who you are or where you are, we have unity together, just as, like Paul says, the Jew and the Gentiles have unity together as well. And Paul concludes the entire passage as he's concluded a few of the other blessings, all for the praise and glory of God. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here together tonight as a congregation. Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us and the grace that you've bestowed on us in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would, throughout this next week, be conscious of the grace and the blessings that we've received. Lord, looking, looking in all things as a blessing. Lord, that you, have, that you are sovereign in all things and that, and that us being in Christ can give us a confidence in salvation and a rest and peace. Lord, we pray that we would leave here knowing you more than when we first came in. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.